Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. I am going to put a disclaimer out there that this case is one that has a lot of emotions attached to it. It's a recent case and one that had widespread attention and some of my analysis might upset people but hopefully we can all learn from this tragic case. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. And any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host, along with some great true crime merch. If you check out Patreon, uh, the different levels will tell you what items you can get for uh, supporting me via Patreon. Otherwise, uh, I'm working on getting those uh, assigned to PayPal. I haven't quite figured out that process yet, but go ahead and donate on Patreon or PayPal and I'll get you some good true blue crime merch. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Van life is a concept that goes back to the middle of the 19th century. In Europe, elaborate horse-drawn wagons called vardos were used by upper nobility to travel in style during long trips around the continent. Most vardos included a bed, a small cast iron stove for cooking, and elaborate woodwork that showed off the wealth of the owner slash traveler. Around the same time, oxen-drawn wagons were used in the United States to facilitate westward expansion as families loaded all of their belongings into a Conestoga wagon and took to trails like the Oregon Trail as they headed out to settle in the west. Of a much humbler design, the wagons served the purpose of hauling supplies for the journey and offering shelter during poor weather. Travelers often formed groups of wagons as they headed into the frontier as attacks from Native Americans and bandits were an ever-present threat. The term circle the wagons referred to the defensive circle people would make with the wagons during an attack as they took shelter in the middle and attempted to repel the aggressors. Roughly a hundred years later, most people living out of vehicles had been forced into them during the Great Depression as they moved around the country looking for work. The war and post-war economy helped propel America out of the Depression and into a more stable time period. Fewer people during this time used their vehicles as a form of lodging, and it wasn't until the 1960s and the introduction of vehicles like the VW camper van that people started to use vehicles as mobile forms of lodging again. For the last 60 years, vans, pickup campers, and RVs have gained popularity at times and have offered a form of secondary living for people that want to explore the open road for a few weeks or months each year. But in 2011, the hashtag van life was used and popularized by social media influencers and bloggers and an entire movement took off. People, mainly younger adults, took to converting cargo vans, older conversion vans, and even box trucks into homes on wheels. While some were factory-made with posh interiors complete with small kitchens, entertainment centers, and even indoor or outdoor showers, others were handmade and could be as rough as a sleeping bag on the floor and some wooden boxes for storage. Living out of a van gave the occupants the freedom to travel around the country, work jobs for cash, 
avoid expensive monthly living costs such as a mortgage and utility bills, and its popularity grew year after year. In 2021, a young couple decided to take on the hashtag van life and set out for what was supposed to be a four-month trip across the United States in a converted transit van. When the female half of the couple went missing, it sparked a national outcry against domestic violence and a manhunt for her fiancé took the country by storm. This is the tragic story of Gabby Petito. Gabrielle Verona Petito was born on March 19, 1999 in Blue Point, New York. She was the oldest sibling out of the seven children that made up her blended family. She had both biological and step-siblings in her house as she was growing up. Gabby, as she was known to friends and family, graduated from high school in 2017. She met her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, during her time in high school. They met when he was a junior and she was a sophomore, and they had an on-again, off-again relationship for much of high school. They took a three-year break after Brian graduated, and after Gabby graduated, she moved to North Carolina, where she worked as a waitress, and while she had applied to a local community college, she didn't officially register and attend. In 2019, she started dating Brian again and moved to Florida, where he and his family had moved to from New York. Gabby got a job as a pharmacy tech at a grocery store while Brian worked at the store and made money selling watercolor paintings and digital artwork. Gabby had always been involved in social media and aspired to be a social media influencer via Instagram and YouTube. These were pretty big dreams for a young couple with limited social media presence and limited funding, but like many young people, they decided to follow their dreams. Their first trip was not a van life trip, but just the typical cross-country trip that many young people in America take part in. Backpacking across America is not nearly as popular as it is in Europe, and both the size of America and the lack of cheap lodging like hostels and cheap public transportation between metro areas results in more young people doing road trips in America than backpacking. The couple completed their first cross-country trip in late 2019 and early into 2020, departing from New York and visiting destinations such as Las Vegas, Pikes Peak, and Yosemite. The trip was an attempt for Gabby to build her social media presence as she posted daily videos and photos on her platforms and attempted to build a following. After returning to Florida from their trip, the young couple quit their grocery store jobs in early 2020 due to the COVID pandemic. Gabby started working 50 to 60 plus hour weeks at two jobs, and Brian was not happy about her working somewhere different than him. This was the first sign that some of her close friends saw that Brian had jealousy and control issues. It was said he was not a fan of her growing social media following because of his jealousy issues. But regardless, the two made a plan to pool their money, buy a van, outfit it for four months of cross-country travel, and attempt to secure a social media following for Gabby that would support a nomadic lifestyle. Their home for those four months would be a 2012 Ford Transit van. These types of vans are mainly used as commercial work trucks for tradespeople such as plumbers, painters, HVACs installers, etc., or they are used for delivery vehicles. The rear cargo area of the van is raised to provide more space for work equipment and deliveries, and used models of this vehicle are often procured by people wanting to turn them into camper vans. By June of 2021, the couple and their van were ready to hit the road for their epic road trip. They had plans to hit up 
many of America's national parks and scenic areas as they started their trip across the north in the summer and we returned through the south as fall and the beginning of winter set in. They began by driving up the east coast to visit New York and celebrate one of Gabby's siblings' high school graduations. They then returned to Florida and on July 2nd, they pointed the van west and set out on their planned road trip. Their first destination appeared to be Colorado as they drove through Kansas on the 4th of July and into Colorado. After visiting Colorado Springs on July 8th and Great Sand Dunes National Park on July 10th, they headed into Utah to take in the beauty that is Zion National Park on July 16th. Five days later, on July 21st, they visited Bryce Canyon and then proceeded on to Mystic Hot Springs in Utah on the 26th. The pair stayed, stayed in Utah to visit Canyonlands National Park on July 29th and spend some time in Moab, Utah in the vicinity of Arches National Park on August 12th. But something would happen on August 12th that would later bring a lot of angst and controversy to this case. Around 4 p.m. on August 12th, an eyewitness saw a physical altercation between a man and woman outside the Moonflower Community Cooperative in Moab, Utah. A man called 911 to report a male party, who was later identified as Brian, had slapped a female, who was later identified as Gabby, outside the store. The couple then ran up and down the sidewalk, and the male slapped the female again. They then got into their van and left, but the witness took photos of the van and license plate, and that information was aired to officers in the area. A Moab police officer located the suspect vehicle just outside the entrance to Arches National Park. As they followed the vehicle, it suddenly sped up and hit the curb, at which point the officer aired that the suspect driver might be intoxicated, and he activated his emergency lights to get the vehicle to pull over. The officer activated his body cam, and the entire incident was recorded from start to finish. Contact was made with Gabby in the passenger seat, and she was asked to step outside the vehicle and come speak to the officer. It was clear she was emotional and had been crying and had some redness on her face. After the point in which the officers made contact with Gabby, neither Gabby nor Brian were allowed to speak to each other again. And so we'll take a break here. I know that was a lot to digest in, in the form of a story. We've got the setup of how this young couple met. They met in high school. Uh, it sounds like, I think they actually broke up after Brian graduated from high school. Uh, I don't know if it was then that his family was moving to Florida, but uh, she had her senior year of high school ahead of her, and then she had two years where she was just you know, kind of living life, moved to North Carolina, was working as a, as a waitress, and at some point, obviously three years after they broke up, they get back together in 2019. And... It was said it was an on-again, off-again relationship in high school, which does happen. Uh, and then you've got this big break, and they decide they're going to get back together. But friends are going to say from the very beginning they thought the relationship was toxic, that Brian had this controlling attitude towards Gabby. And this was evident. They worked at the same grocery store, quit the store together. And then when she started working, because she wanted to forward her social media. I, I think I said in there it was like the couple's dream and all that kind of stuff. It was more her dream. Uh, she wanted to be able to live this nomadic lifestyle supported by her social media presence, uh, make money off of the YouTube channel and the Instagram. And again, there's nothing wrong with, with a social media influence. It's just that 
it's it's a very difficult lifestyle to live this nomadic van life and it'd be difficult for a solo person of that age to do it just because there's things that could happen your vehicle could break down uh, money is hard to come by at least if there's two of you you're splitting costs but once you add another person in and we're going to talk about that in here in a little bit you've you're sharing close cramped quarters for days and days and days on end and nights next to you know this one other person and and no matter how much you might love this other person or you may think you're the perfect couple after a few weeks a month a couple months of being just a few feet away from each other 24 hours a day you there's going to be some issues it's just it's going to happen but in this case, again, you've got this 911 witness that calls. He's stating he clearly saw Brian slap Gabby twice, chase her down on the sidewalk. So there's actually an emergency tone that's sent out to the officers. Be on the lookout for this vehicle. It's been involved in a domestic assault, male assault of the female. And it sounded as if the officer is probably going to follow the vehicle for a little bit. You as a police officer, you never want to go into a domestic situation alone. They are the one of the most, if not the most, uh, dangerous situations for police officers because emotions are high. There's a lot on the line when it comes to somebody potentially being arrested for domestic assault. Um, a lot of officers are killed in line of duty or killed while responding to domestic assault. So it's not something you usually want to try to handle on your own but it sounded as if the vehicle was headed towards towards the national park to arches national park it was almost near the entrance i think where eventually they were stopped and when the police officer sees what he thinks is potentially signs of an intoxicated driver the vehicle changing speeds and hitting the curb suddenly he realizes now it's there's other dangers in mind if he lets this vehicle keep driving and the driver's intoxicated and then crashes into one of the booths at the entrance to the park or a lot of people get out and walk to the national park sign to take a photo and if he comes across some of these pedestrians that are often walking on the roadway and he hits one of them the officer makes the right choice by stopping the vehicle he's probably alone but it, it doesn't sound like it takes very long for his backup to get there and as we get to the end of where we were in the story we'll talk about it later too but that separation of the two parties is so important because if you interview them together and one of them is truly a victim of domestic violence they might be afraid to say something or they will be afraid to say something in front of the other person they have time to get their quote-unquote stories together if they're gonna try to make it difficult for officers to figure out what happened that separation allows for hopefully the most honest communication with with who the, the officers this time believe is the victim, which is Gabby. So they've got her away from Brian, back in a squad car. She's emotional. She just went through this experience. And as I said, Brian and Gabby are not going to have contact for the rest of, rest of this time. I think it's 75 minutes in total. So it's not as if they're letting Gabby go back and sit in the car and then come back out and, and talk with Brian and all this kind of stuff. So when you hear all this stuff, keep in mind they're separated. Uh, they're in, both in safe locations away from each other and officers are going to start investigating this. 
and meanwhile a third officer had located a different witness outside the store where the altercation occurred. That witness stated that he saw Gabby hitting Brian and Brian was trying to push Gabby away. And this witness provided a recorded statement and was willing to testify to what they saw. So I'm going to approach this incident much like the 16-year-old veteran officer who was investigating this, investigating this case did that day. Uh, he had about the same amount of patrol experience that I did uh, when I left law enforcement. And if he was like me, he'd handled probably hundreds of these domestic altercations. And I'm also going to base my opinions on the facts presented in the actual police reports and from watching the body cam video and the 99-page report that was written after an independent full review of the police interaction was taken. So as most people know, this story, and as I mentioned in the introduction, this story is not going to end well, uh, very much unfortunately for Gabby. And so this entire interaction with the Moab Police Department is going to go under one of the biggest microscopes that a police investigation has ever gone under, especially a misdemeanor domestic assault situation like this was. Uh, I think this 75-minute interaction was between this investigation into it, media investigations into it, the lawsuit that's out there about this. Uh, it's probably going to be one of the most scrutinized 75 minutes of uh, law enforcement investigation, at least patrol investigation, that that I've known of in, in recent history here. And so, like I said, I, I read the official police reports, I read this 99-page report, I watched the, the video, so I'm taking all my information from that. I'm not taking it from news sources. I mean, even in the 99-page report, uh, there were some allegations made against the officers, and I don't know if it was the family's lawyer or if it was just some lawyer representing something, but she leveled accusations against the officers that they referred to Gabby is a five foot two blonde hair blue eyed girl and the the accusation was well what what reference does that have what does her hair color and eye color have to do with anything and so this independent investigator went and reviewed the the body cam footage and this is 100% from beginning to end body cam footage so everything that this officer said is captured it wasn't the officer that said blue eyed blonde haired it was Brian he was making reference to the fact that Gabby is much smaller than him and you know she's this little petite blue-eyed blonde-haired girl and so even when the police are getting accused of saying stuff and it's proven that it's not it's still making its way in the report it was unsubstantiated uh, complaint in the report but still that's sometimes police have to deal with these people making completely false accusations against them and there are going to be some accurate accusations in here too but i'm just going to say that i'm not basing this off stuff on reddit or other people on youtube or twitter talking about this incident i went to the actual sources which was which is the body cam which can't be disputed the reports which i mean obviously that's the officer's interpretations but then this independent 99 page report as well and so some of the stuff i say might be unpopular with some people but I'm not going to avoid the issue at hand or emit stuff to make the story more cynical than it already is. And a lot of attention was brought to the Moab Police Department, as I mentioned, after this incident. They're facing a $50 million lawsuit from Gabby's family, and their actions that day were dissected and discussed at length by every news outlet, internet detective, social media commentator, etc. 
And so here is what I'm going to say. From all that I reviewed of the incident in Moab, I believe the officers did what they felt in their hearts was the right thing to do. And while mistakes were made, I don't believe they were intentional, and by no means do I believe they could have ever seen the tragic outcome of this case. When two parties of an assault are together, neither party can talk freely about what happened. So the first step of any domestic situation is to separate the two people involved. Police did that here, and then very quickly they have to get the facts in the case and use those facts to guide their decision-making process in regards to the outcome of the police encounter. So in this case, they had two witnesses, and then they've got the, you know, Gabby and Brian. So there's four people that are going to recount what happened during this altercation. You've got the 911 caller who stated they saw Brian slap Gabby, chase her down and slap her again. And what this witness is describing is 100% a domestic assault and a criminal act in which Brian should have been arrested and put into jail for committing. But when an officer arrived to take down more information from that witness, they happened upon this second witness who was telling a different tale of what happened. This new, also independent witness made it sound like Gabby was what we call the primary aggressor, or in other words, the person who was actually committing the act of domestic assault upon the other. Because people are allowed to defend themselves against physical assault via pushing away or holding the other person as long as the defensive act is never offensive in nature. So when this other witness, uh, this other officer gets to the scene outside of or scene of where the altercation occurred and he finds this other witness saying, hey, here's what I saw. I saw the guy pushing away the girl and it looked like she was trying to you know, hit him or, or do things to him and he was just pushing her away. Well, now you've got a totally different story. And now part of this can be that this altercation, that the two witnesses are seeing two different parts of the altercation. And that's something that officers should be trying to f find out and that's the one place I will fault them in this is that it sounds like they never located or talked to that 911 caller again. But they're also going to base things off of what they hear from Brian and Gabby. And as I mentioned, the officer at the scene of the altercation never located the original caller. So by either mental error or overt omission, they never called and verified what they witnessed. So for this entire 75-minute roadside investigation, the officers speaking with Gabby and Brian are going to make their decisions based on what the witness that the officers actually talked to said and what the couple tell them happened. And I'm not going to break down all 75 minutes of the video or all 99 pages of the report, but I will highlight some of the details that are brought forth from the questioning of Gabby and Brian. And when we do this, let's keep in mind these two young individuals have been traveling through one of the hottest states in America in July and August with very little in the way of privacy or time away from each other. As I mentioned before, naturally there's going to be some discord, but I believe on August 12th the, the proverbial pot boiled over and the result was this physical altercation. According to both Gabby and Brian, they had spent the late morning and afternoon at the Moonflower Co-op. This is because people living the van life often use these co-ops, coffee shops, libraries, fast food places, or etc. to get access to public Wi-Fi for their communication, internet surfing, and the cases of Gabby, she needs it for her photo and video uploading. They're, they clearly aren't going to have a Ethernet line to their van, and phones, especially data plans on phones, um, don't often allow you to upload gigabytes of 
of YouTube videos every week. Um, so basically, these the people that are living this nomadic lifestyle will stop out at a, a coffee shop for a couple hours so that they can use the Wi-Fi to upload their video or however however it's going to go. But because of this and because they're constantly on the move, this day was kind of set aside. Gabby wanted to get all caught up with stuff. So they're sitting outside of this co-op. It's said that the flies are, are really, really bad. It's been a long, hot day. And Gabby wanted to get her work done on her website. And Brian was getting restless and emotions got hot. At some point, Gabby was looking in the van and she saw a bunch of dirt in the living area and was upset with Brian for not keeping the area clean. And the argument turned into a pushing match that spilled out onto the street and sidewalk, which prompted the calls from the witnesses. And this is something, if you've ever been camping or, or tried to do this van life thing or anything, uh, one pe thing that people don't account for is how much dirt is going to get into your now living arrangement. Because if you're in a tent, you're living in a eight by six foot area. Uh, there's, there's not usually, unless you have a really fancy tent, kind of a foyer to take your shoes off and knock the dirt around and all that kind of stuff. So that stuff ends up getting inside the tent. Uh, and same thing with this van. There's not a lot of space. It's hard to keep it clean. And Gabby's an, a, she said that she was a neat freak and had OCD. So this kind of, again, emotions are already high. Things boil over. And Gabby wants to take the van and get some distance. But Brian told officers originally that he didn't want her to take the van because he didn't have a phone. And he was worried she would just leave him behind and be stuck in Moab. And now this is later going to be proven to be a lie, as Brian did have a working phone and his desire was to keep Gabby from driving off. This was more likely a result of him losing control over Gabby and the situation he needed that control. So we're gonna see very early on in their interactions with police that Brian is not afraid to lie in order to make things look better for him. And it sounded as if officers might have known this at least in the report it was known by the time the report was done that brian had a phone during this incident so i think officers knew by the end of it and again if a guy's willing to lie about the reason the whole thing started and and try to lessen his responsibility for the whole thing it's not like it's going to change everything but i definitely take things that he says says with a grain of salt at this point and regardless the fight over the keys for the vehicle because uh, Brian had the keys Gabby wanted the keys she wanted to get in the van and get some distance and space and just have a cool-off period Brian didn't want that so he's holding on to the keys this turns physical and Gabby admits to scratching hitting hitting Brian in an attempt to get the keys Brian had visible injuries to his face to include scratches on his neck nose, forehead, and side of his face, and an injury to his arm. And because these injuries were visible, Brian was asked about them and he shrugged them off, saying he wasn't in any pain and wasn't complaining. Gabby, meanwhile, had the visible redness to her face. Officers, aware of what the first witness had reported, asked her if Brian hit her. She said he did, but it was only after she was hitting him. She also admitted to hitting him while he was driving, which is what caused the van to speed up and then hit the curb. When asked where they were headed, Gabby said they were out of water, so they were headed into the National Park to fill their six-gallon water jug. Gabby was offered a Gatorade because of the heat and her saying she was thirsty, but she said she didn't drink Gatorade and requested a water instead. 
She was given water in a plastic water bottle, which she drank from. Realizing Brian must be thirsty too, he was also offered a plastic water bottle, but he declined, stating he was against plastic water bottles and that he only drank from melons. When asked if they were taking any medications, they both denied taking any prescription medications. Gabby admitted she had OCD and high anxiety, and she thinks Brian has high anxiety, but she did yoga to calm herself. Now, with the information at hand, the officers are faced with a serious and eventually life-changing decision to make. Based on the non-911 eyewitness account and the statements provided by Brian and Gabby, it appeared that the primary aggressor in the situation was Gabby. She had admitted to hitting Brian on several occasions and only claimed that Brian grabbed her by the face at one point, which is why it was red and had a small cut. Brian had admitted that Gabby hit him and scratched him, but he was denying the injuries caused him any physical pain. This was troubling for the officer in charge of the call. As I mentioned, he's a 16-year veteran of law enforcement and he has daughters of his own. He felt that Brian was likely mentally and emotionally abusing Gabby and the last thing he wanted was for any harm to come to Gabby. He turned to Utah law for his options and they all worked against Gabby. Because they didn't have the 911 caller statement and even if they did, that was one statement that didn't match up with three other statements, including another independent witness and both Brian and Gabby. The Utah legislator had written a very clear and concise domestic assault law that meant that any physical harm brought against another with a domestic relationship present was an arrestable offense. However, when he read the law, the officer mistakenly applied intent to the law, which was something that was strictly left out of the law and replaced by the word attempt. The officer working under the assumption the arrest required intent cautioned Gabby to think about her answer and then asked her if she intended to harm Brian. She replied strongly that her intent was not to hurt Brian, she just wanted the keys and wanted space. The officers feeling they had navigated the investigation found that both parties were suffering from emotional distress brought on by being in such close quarters to someone for so long without space. They felt that based on the evidence provided, they could only arrest Gabby, and the end result of that arrest was not beneficial to her or the situation. They also felt that Brian not only was against the arrest, arrest, but he was not truly a victim. Thus, the extremely controversial decision was made to make no arrest and let the parties separate on their own. Gabby was given the keys to her van and told that she could stay wherever she wanted that night, but to stay away from Brian and not contact him via phone unless it was an absolute emergency. Brian was given a ride to a nearby hotel and dropped off by officers. He was told not to contact Gabby until morning so the two can have a cooling off period and he let his emotions that boiled over that day subside. So let's discuss this encounter. Now this is a very typical domestic report incident especially one that's not reported by one of the involved parties. We have to ask ourselves if the witness hadn't called 911 that day, it's possible that Gabby may have called later in the day, especially if it continued to escalate, but it's also possible this domestic encounter would have never been documented. That's because when it's a third party that reports the domestic, it's very often the case that the involved parties do not want law enforcement involvement, and once law enforcement is involved, the parties don't want any arrests or charges in the case. Emotional and even physical altercations might be part of their relationship, and while this is unhealthy, toxic, and dangerous, some people decide to live with it or are too scared to leave the situation. 
And that fear is the toughest hurdle for officers to navigate. The fear can be physically based as in the victim knows they're going to suffer further physical abuse as a result of any law enforcement action, or it can be fear of being separated from someone that controls them. In this case, this was evident at several points during the investigation as the officers could tell Brian had some level of control over Gabby, to the point she was even afraid to drive her own van because she, quote, didn't drive it much. But the law doesn't consider external factors such as control or manipulation. It's black and it's white, and it states that someone attempts harm on another person that they have a domestic relationship with, they are to be arrested. Officers did what they could given the circumstances, and as we're going to learn, what happens to Gabby isn't immediate, and some would argue it's not foreseeable. So before we move on to the next part of the story here, We'll go back and break down a couple things from their investigation. I want to be very clear here and say that I am not blaming Gabby for any of this. Uh, I don't victim blame. I try very hard to come out and say I'm not victim blaming. I'm trying to make it very clear that whether it's a man or a woman that's the victim in a domestic, an ongoing domestic abuse situation, that fear that they have um, that's been ingrained in them through either physical abuse or emotional uh, verbal abuse that kind of stuff that codependency that fear it's real and it's not their fault and it's not something that that they should ever be blamed for in terms of well they had this option I'm not saying that because she was separated from Brian she should have you know, told the whole truth and nothing but the truth and said that she was scared of him and said that he was controlling her. I, I wish she had because I think this officer, this this guy who has daughters, may have been able to steer the investigation a completely different way. But because of this fear, and that's why I said it's such a hurdle for law enforcement to work past, these non-cooperative witnesses, by no fault of their own, these non-cooperative victims, uh, can often make it almost impossible because, again, law enforcement is bound to the statutes. They're bound to the law. They don't get to decide in some cases that there's discretion here. And these officers would actually get kind of torn apart in this review about how this whole thing about intent. And that's really important because intent should be a part of any criminal uh, investigation. It's It's accidents happen an accident is not a domestic assault based on utah law if if i go to swing and put a backpack on or something like that and i happen to hit my domestic partner while we're arguing with his backpack and it was never my intent to hit that person based on this law they could be read as well i put that backpack on knowing I was close to this other person, I attempted to harm them, therefore I committed domestic violence. And that's not how the laws are supposed to work. We're supposed to be able to judge somebody's intent to a certain degree. And you can look at it in this case, what that's what they tried to do with Gabby and say, it's not like she woke up that day or even five minutes before this argument, she put it in her head that I'm going to hurt Brian. That was not her intent. That was not what she was trying to do. 
Brian had the keys. She wanted the keys. She wanted to leave. Did she handle it the best way possible? No. But did Brian handle it the best way possible? Absolutely not either. Uh, and again, that comes down to the fact that they have been together in close, confined situations in hot weather for days upon days upon days at this point. And it it can be your best friend. It can be your true love. It can be anybody in this situation. You're eventually going to potentially lose that control. And one of the problems is, is Brian is not one to allow things to get out of his control. And that's only going to make things worse in this situation. That if he could have just had the capabilities to let Gabby just get into the van and drive off, he could have stayed at this co-op. He could have cooled down. She wouldn't have left him. I don't think that was her intent of taking the van. She goes somewhere for an hour or two, works on her social media without him around. Because it was said too, I didn't get into it during the story here, but she was very upset with Brian because he's basically been telling her that this social media stuff isn't going to work for her. That it it's not. this is a dream that's not going to come true for her. And among all the things we want our significant others to, to do for us, we want them to support us. We want them to support our dreams. And it didn't sound like Brian was doing that, and that really upset her. So maybe she just needed that space to get away for a couple hours, work on her social media stuff without this negative attitude around her about it and then she could have come back and they could have had a talk and maybe discussed how they were feeling whatever it might be and things would have been better but because brian has these control issues and won't let her leave the situation wasn't going to just calm down on its own and it and it reached this point so again i know that's a very long way for me to go around saying i'm not blaming gabby for this as from everything that I can tell, Gabby was this person who was full of life. Yes, I think she put a lot of demands on herself, and part of that's the OCD and the high anxiety, and that's a lot of added stress to yourself when you're already in a stressful life situation. It's it's not like she had millions of dollars and was just, oh, well, if this doesn't work out, this doesn't work out. This, this was, she had worked her absolute butt off to buy this van and to outfit it and to support her social media, hoping that this would take off and, and she could live this dream life. And unfortunately, she didn't have a very supportive partner in this process. And, and again, as I mentioned before, things are gonna get a whole lot worse. But I just, I wanted to be very clear that while I do see that law enforcement made a couple mistakes, I really don't know what they would have done, uh, what what they could have done differently. They can't, with the evidence presented to them, they can't arrest Brian. If if they arrested Brian and that video got out, Brian's would have a lawsuit against them because any lawyer is going to look at that and say, you arrested the victim of domestic assault. You had an independent witness that said he was the victim. You have her admitting to assaulting him. If you turn around and arrest him, again, and violate his civil rights, you're getting sued. If you arrest her, the, the officers knew that she had this dream, this social media dream. Uh, they knew it wasn't going to solve anything. It's it's not that that it's 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 not like this is going to magically fix the relationship. It's just going to make things worse. And they didn't want to do that to Gabby. 
And so they went with this other route, and but it, it's as I've said many times before, law enforcement is, is a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, and that's what the officers found themselves in. And then again, it became under this huge microscope, and everybody jumped all over him saying they should have arrested Brian. How did they let you know this happen? All this kind of stuff. And we're actually going to see that Gabby's not going to be killed that evening. It's not as if officers let them go just down the road and then he killed her an hour later and everybody's saying if if only they had arrested brian or made them separate or whatever it might be gabby would still be alive we're, we're going to see that's not the case but unfortunately when people when there's a tragedy people look to blame somebody and instead of putting all the blame on this on brian like it should be uh police because of a, a, a few small mistakes that again i don't know what it changed the outcome of things and again i think they did what they did because they really cared about gabby and cared about this situation working out for the best for her uh, because it went so bad they became scapegoats and i just don't think that's fair but again that's my unpopular opinion that's the one i disclaimed about so if you guys feel differently i get it i just i've been in that situation before with trying to decide how to work through a domestic assault situation without having to arrest somebody that I think is the victim, but I don't have evidence of it. It's just, it's a terrible place to be. And I feel for these officers and then to be uh, destroyed on national media, I don't think it's fair. And so while not a lot is known about any reunion between the parties after the event in Moab, what is known is that the cooling off period and distance was extended when Brian flew out of Salt Lake City for his parents' house in Florida on August 17th, five days after their Moab incident. Brian's family attorney would later address media questions about the flight home, stating Brian went back to obtain some items and empty a storage locker and end the storage lease in an effort to save some money. He was also contemplating the extension of the road trip. And so this is where I come in and say, it's not even an hour later that something bad is going to happen to Gabby. Five days after that Moab incident, Brian is flying home. So the police forced a physical separation on the two of them for the night they brian and gabby have made the decision that gabby's going to keep going on this trip and brian's going to fly home to his parents house so now they they've got over a thousand miles of distance probably closer to two thousand miles of distance between them and several days since this last incident and brian's going to stay out here for a week uh, in Florida. So again, they're going to have a major cooling down period where they're not around each other, which I think is really a good idea at this point for them. And let's also realize it's been less than two months. They haven't hit the halfway point of this four month trip and they're considering putting an end to the trip. And again, they were on again, off again in high school. Then they were off for three years and then back on. And then they decided to go on this massive road trip in order to advance Gabby's social media, which is a following that Brian doesn't support. So I'm not, again, not victim blaming. I'm just looking at this from the outside saying, this has disaster written on it, just based on their history, just based on, again, he doesn't even support the whole idea behind this trip. He's just going along because he will not let Gabby go alone and some would say this trip was doomed from the start but the couple decided to give it another go and brian flew back to salt lake city on august 23rd and was picked up by gabby so they can continue their trip together 
but the cooling off period was not enough and the decision to continue the trip would prove to be deadly. And in part two, we'll cover the strange text from Gabby that eventually led to fears that she had disappeared. We'll cover the investigation into her disappearance and the outcome of that investigation and what it meant for Brian. So again, I apologize for kind of going off on the tangent I did in this episode. Uh, when this story first broke, uh, you know, again, I, I feel terrible for Gabby and her family. My number one hope when the story first broke was that she'd be found safe. And, and when that wasn't the case, you know, I wanted justice. I want I want Brian to pay for it. But then I feel like the entire focus of the of the case turned to the domestic violence response by the Moab Police Department. And I had several friends go to Facebook to that were making comments about the police and how they handled things and whatnot. And, and I know Facebook is a toxic environment when you get involved in it, to comments on that kind of stuff. So I kept my mouth shut. I, I talked to some of my friends face to face because that's how you settle differences and that's how you you know, hopefully at least get the facts out there. And I, I, and I felt at some point I was going to cover this case and I just wanted to cover that Moab uh, police department response in a little more detail so people don't just get this idea that the police had a chance to arrest Brian and they didn't and they just let him go and as a result uh, Gabby's dead. I just, I just think that's completely unfair but that's how the narrative was pushed on the issue. I don't think people had all the facts. I don't think people took the time to watch the whole video or read the reports. They just went right to the assumption that the police were lazy, didn't want to do their jobs, and as a result, Gabby died. And that's, I think, very far from the truth and, again, not fair to those officers. But uh, stay tuned because we will cover part two of the Gabby Petito uh, story in our next episode. So thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.